Today on Merchants of Change, we talked to former national champion from University of Denver Ice Hockey, Andrew Thomas, who's currently the manager of sales and customer success for the elite market at Huddle, who sells performance analysis software to sports organizations all over the world. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? What's up, JR? How you doing, buddy? Good, man. You? Good. I'm psyched to have you. I got you solo. John's out today. Um, so everybody, we got we got Andrew Thomas. Uh, Tomer and I go way back, so this is going to be a really fun conversation. We've actually really never talked, Tomer, about your transition and about like your view on on sales. So I'm going to be learning a lot, uh, even though I know a lot about you. Um, so I'd love to, uh, I guess, just quick background, Tomer. Me and you met about like a decade ago, right? At least, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through, through the small world of hockey as, as all things, right? Yeah, especially in, the, uh, especially in the Boston and New England area. But, you know, knowing the Butler family, having grown up in New Hampshire and, and watching Bobby, you know, granted where he's a little bit younger than I, but, you know, hearing about Bobby through the years and obviously yourself at Holy Cross, it was uh, destined, to, destined to happen. But, you know, uh, always a pleasure with, with you and your family. So, so I, I think that's a good place to start. You mentioned New Hampshire, right? And, uh, you know, New Hampshire as, as a, as a kid from central mass, I, I always feel like the, uh, the redheaded stepchild of, of the, the Boston area, right? Like kids from Boston think that if you go past 93, you're in the boondocks, right? I try to remind my friends that South Boston isn't the only town with triple deckers. Um, what, what is it, what was it like growing up in, uh, in New Hampshire playing sports and like, what, what's the culture like up there? How is it the same and different than, than down in Massachusetts? Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities. Just, you know, the size is the, the huge difference. I grew up in a, in a small town outside of Concord and, you know, a few thousand people. There was, you know, 90 kids in my, my grade school class and, you know, all the way through until I got to high school. So, um, you know, seasonality was a big thing in sports. You know, you'd roll from the hockey rink right into baseball or lacrosse and you'd go with kind of the same group of, of guys and then the next season would roll over and you'd do the same thing. So for me personally, I think I was fortunate because my, my dad had a background in hockey. He was a, a goalie at Assumption College uh, out in the Worcester area and then he refereed at a really, really high level um, for a long time. And, you know, I was born in Wisconsin, lived there until 1990 so uh first five years of my life and then we moved back to new england but that was really my dad's like transition out of hockey and out of refereeing he was you know doing ncaa national championships he uh you know refereeing the olympics and you know did some old wha games you know back when there was other professional leagues other than just the nhl um but he really chose to to take a different path and you know support his boys and and their you know upbringing and you know not being away every weekend and um, I'm sure my mother had a big hand in that of not wanting to spend too many more Saturday nights at the rink, but, um, uh, that was great. And my dad really introduced, a, a different 
world outside of New Hampshire youth hockey, you know, and I was able to make a transition down and play in the Boston Metropolitan League, which I'm sure you remember. And um, it opened my eyes to what competitive hockey was like at that age. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of time in the car commuting from New Hampshire <laughs> down to Lowell or down to Marlboro or, you know, down to the South shore or something like that. But um, I was fortunate though, because I, I started to meet those, that group, that kind of that elite group of hockey players at a pretty young age and um, had some familiarities. So when the time came, it was, it was a little bit easier to break into it. But I think that helped me long-term because I never, you know, as much as I wanted to play college hockey, I wasn't dead set on playing in New England. I think I was considerate of any college hockey program that wanted to talk to me. But um, I also knew that there was just a lot of different environments out there that I could be successful in, and I'm sure other people can too. Yeah, dude, I had no idea your dad was a ref. Yeah. You, you know, my, my dad refs college hockey as well. Did and he? now my, yeah. my brother Al does. Um, and I didn't know he was a greyhound either. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. awesome. Yeah, I think he's he holds some records as a goalie, and I think one of them is like, highest save percentage but the other is like most goals allowed in my college <laughs> career so a lot of some he's proud of some he's not so proud of. <laughs> that's unreal yeah. did you did, you didn't just did you just play hockey you were you were like a multi-sport athlete right in high school yeah I, you know played baseball coming up and then my brother started playing lacrosse and and found some real quick success with it um as well yeah. as some other hockey guys that that i knew that made the tr transition over and I loved lacrosse. I mean, it was, you know, at the time, you know, we were a very athletic small school in New Hampshire. So we were competing for state championships every year. And um, yeah. I was kind of the opposite player in lacrosse that I was in hockey. Um, you know, uh, at the time held a few, you know, points and goal records at Bow High School, which is, again, small school, but, you know, something <laughs> that was totally an aberration from what I was as a hockey player, just a, a good, a strong skating you know, rugged defenseman. So um, it was great. It was my my release away from hockey, being able to really stay in shape, you know, um, with the amount that lacrosse requires of you. But um, it was what I did with my high school buddies because at that point I was playing junior hockey and um, it was a much more serious endeavor, even at the age of 15, 16. So lacrosse was a uh, definitely an escape at that point. That's good. You get you got to stay connected with your high school buddies, even though you're playing in juniors. That's huge. Exactly. That's a game changer. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned it, like you know, growing up in Massachusetts, we're in like you know a hockey hotbed with hockey East, right? And like you know that crew of guys that we all grew up with. It was like you know you wanted to play in a bean pot. You wanted to you wanted to play locally. You wanted to travel around, kind of that hockey East kind of factory. But you ended up you know, going to an unbelievable school, right? You know, University of Denver. Well, how, how did you end up out there? Like, what, and what was it like playing in a different part of the country than like really most of all of our friends really ended up locally where you were, you were kind of out, out, out there in the, in, in Colorado. Yeah, it was a, a roundabout way. I think I had, you know, to your point, just playing junior hockey in New England, playing for the New Hampshire Monarchs at the time. I just assumed Hockey East or, or an Ivy League school was kind of in my future. Um, it was great because my dad had such a familiarity with college hockey. He would always just plant the seed in my ear that, you know, there is life outside of Hockey East. And, and you know, he had seen what Wisconsin looks like in North Dakota and um, in Denver at the time. So, like, he really understood, you know, uh, as great as Hockey East was, it's not – the end all be all 
Um, so it was funny when, and I'm sure you remember these days, you know, Worcester still holds a, uh, a regional, an NCAA regional every year. You'd go down, you, you know, buy one ticket, you get to see two games. And I remember seeing Denver and Michigan play and it was just, it was wild. I mean, men out there, full beards. And, um, that always stuck in my mind and still did. So I knew that, you know, again, not, not to be redundant, but there was life outside of hockey East. And then my junior year of high school, I was drafted in the uh, United States Hockey League, the USHL. Um, and at the time, you know, I knew I could have stayed local and, you know, been comfortable and probably gotten to a place where I could, you know, uh, earn a Division One scholarship here in the East Coast. But I just, I'd always played over my head. And I'd always played with older guys. And I just wanted to see how I could do um, out in the Midwest against the best, you know, North American players that, you know, were age eligible before college. Um, landed in Waterloo, uh, uh, Iowa, and um, had, a, had a tremendous year. A lot of guys that ended up landing at UNH and you know, Pete MacArthur, Matt Fornatero, Mike Raja, Kevin Regan. I mean, um, the list goes on. Joe, Joe Pavelski, uh, of all people, was our captain. So we were, it was kind of a, uh, a fairy tale year. We won the Clark Cup, which was the championship uh, in the USHL that season, the playoff championship. Wait, all those people you just mentioned were on your junior team? Yeah. And there was Are more. Are you kidding and me? Derek Whitmore. Um, oh, man. I'm Jake Schwan. You guys were a wagon. Yeah, dude. we were, and we didn't know it. You know, like they had made, made a good run the year before. A lot of good players had left. Reed Cashman was there the year before I was, and uh, you know he's now the um, coach up at Dartmouth. And yeah. it was just, uh, yeah, it, it kind of came together. We were the eight seed coming in, and ended up having just a great, great playoff run, and had some guys like Joe and, and Matt that that carried us a lot of the way. But um, you know, early in that year, I started to get some some sniffs, you know, from some teams, but I figured I'd have to do a few years out there, do a postgraduate year and um, keep maturing to, you know, at least that's what the Ivy League schools were telling me. And, you know, Denver came and uh, they said, hey, you're our only recruit for one spot. You know, you're going to play all four years. You don't have to worry about sitting behind anybody. Um, and, you know, and it's a full scholarship opportunity. So took a visit, fell in love with the town, fell in love with the city. And the campus was great. The guys were terrific. Um, and it just seems, you know, it seemed like a really good fit. Uh, should I probably have taken my time and done, you know, all the visits I could have? Definitely. But um, I still don't regret the decision at all because, you know, uh, at the time I thought I missed my, my opportunity, right? Because I'm a senior in high school and playing in Waterloo and uh, Denver goes and wins the national championship in Boston. And I'm like, well, I, there, there it goes. You know, what team goes back to back, let alone wins it twice in four or five years. Um, and then thankfully fell into a great situation where had a great class come in with me and then had a lot of guys return and uh, we were able to, to do it again my freshman year. So lucky Decent. in a lot of senses. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw them play this year in Boston too. Yeah. Um, that's unreal. I mean, that's a, it's 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 great because like you got it out of the way. Then it's tough because like you're living up to that for the next three years, right? A hundred percent, and it's kind of the expectation, right? Because you win, you win two in a row. Um, I was obviously on the back end of those two, but you get a, a whole new recruiting class that's expecting to come in and do it again, and it's just it's almost right. retraining right. them and breaking them down to hey, you know, every year is different. It's a it's a marathon, and you know things aren't handed to you, but um you're right it's you, you you climb the mountain and then you realize how hard it really is to get up there again 
Yeah, but it's also like like one thing I, you know, Holy Cross, different level, like different type of background. But like we, when I came in freshman year, they were coming off going to a regional, which was a, you know, just going to a regional Huge. for an Atlantic hockey team was a big deal. But one of the things that I appreciate that I think is really like set me up in, in my career is like understanding what a winning culture is, understanding accountability, teamwork, everybody playing a role. Like I imagine winning a national championship your freshman year really gave you a taste of like, all right, this is how a winning organization operates, right? Yeah. Whether it's sports or business. I think the most in thinking about this discussion and something that I cherish and I probably don't give enough, uh, you know, thought to often is that the senior class we had that year was a group of very much role players. And, you know, they were older, they'd seen a lot, they'd been through a lot. They were very even keel. So knowing that they all filled the role and they were so consistent in their approach on a daily basis. And, and like you said, being in an elite organization, I mean, comes certain inherent traits of being an extremely hard worker, you know, being highly, highly effective with your time, your organization. Um, but then to take it further, it's just that consistency of breaking down long-term goals into really short-term, you know, obstacles or short-term um, initiatives, I guess you could say. And that translates into any walk of life because you can't, you know, you, again, you can't climb a mountain by doing it all at once. You got to do it step by step and, um, you know, overcoming things as they, as they present themselves. But yeah, it was the, it was just the consistency of that group. And I think the, um, their ability to communicate effectively in those environments when, you know, an 18 year old I'm walking into a, a 10,000, you know, seat stadium that's filled and, loud and it's you know guys reminding me that it's just no different than practice it's it's the same stuff we do every single day um yeah it's a it was a lesson that i got you know very early on in my life that has proven true in every experience i've had yeah we, we didn't have that eighteen thousand person problem at holy cross but i i, I can relate yeah, yeah. <laughs> just had it once in a while or yeah uh, uh. So, so I, we talked about this at the beginning, Tom. I've known you a long time. You knew me uh, back in back in the old days before I kind of got my my act together a little bit with the with the with the drugs and the alcohol. And like one thing, I've always looked at you as like a kind like kind of like an old soul, right? Like you know, you like I looked at you like even though we're friends, like as a somebody I looked up to as like a leader. Appreciate that. And and like. You know, one thing that's like really unique about your college career is you were captain junior and senior year. Like, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with it, just like your personality. Um, but like, what do you think, what do you think your teammates saw in you that like led to that captainship as a junior and then a senior? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to think it's, it's a sense of reliability. You know, it, it's people looked at me as a, you know, like I said about the seniors when I was a freshman, it was you know, a yeah. really consistent presence and expectations never really wavered. I think I was consistent in that. But the other piece too, and and I think because it always in, in my mind and my heart always came from a place that was really genuine and caring is that I, I really have a high emphasis on accountability and that's for myself, but as well as the people around me. And I know full well, because I've, I've, operated and you know played and worked under leaders that weren't this way but i i've done the same for leaders that were this way that are truly willing to do the hard work with you 
and empower the people around them to be successful. Um, so I, a lot of cliches there, but like at, at the end of the day, it's just being, I, I hope it was for my consistent approach to my daily preparation, but also just the high level of accountability that I had for myself, but also the people around me. And I think if it comes from a really genuine and honest place, it's, it's easy to buy into that. It's the people yeah. that are feigning it. You know, they're saying like, Hey, this is the way it's gotta be, but they don't embody that at all. It, it just makes it so, um, you know, transparent and, you know, unmotivating or, you know, it lacks motivation for the people around them. But to have somebody that's done it, that wants to keep doing it and does everything they can to do it at the highest level, um, that's an easy leader to get behind. And I know I've, I've ironically fine tuned it since then, because, you know, as a college athlete, you remember, it's just, you're wild. Like you're a wild man. You're just trying to, um, you know, tackle the world every day you can. And, you know, you, every loss you take, like it's a bullet wound, but, um, now being able to really focus that in my professional life, it's, it's paid dividends. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's a, it's a sense of professionalism a little bit, which is like, yeah. you know, it's no wonder you went on and, and you went on after college hockey, you played professionally and you, you bounced around a bit, right? Oh, yeah. East coast, NHL over in Europe. Um, what what are the biggest differences between the leagues, in your opinion, like across? Because because you know we we work with a lot of guys like you that yeah. played in multiple different leagues in all sports. Like what what do you see as the biggest difference? Um, it's it's interesting. Every league has its own uh, reputation, a, but then it also has its own identity, right? Um, at the time, the ECHL was you know pretty rough and tumble, but like it, it, you had. You had some wild, you know, buildings that you'd play in, you know, uh, Johnstown where the, you know, they, they filmed Slapshot and, you know, Redding and uh, Elmira. I mean, just some some hilarious experiences, you know, think, looking back on it. But the American Hockey League is, is much more professional in, in certain ways, right? You've got guys who are really teetering on the cusp of, of the NHL and, you know, some of them are really frustrated to be there. So, like, it's... You see a different um, dynamic in the locker room. You know, in the ECHL, you're not getting paid much. You're, you know, really just living the dream and you're trying to pursue the opportunity in any way that you can. In the American Hockey League, you have guys that are um, so close, they can taste it. And like the dynamic in the locker room is a little bit different. I know Bobby, you know, experienced that a bit. And, you know, I never cracked the NHL, but, you know, had a lot of exposure to coaches and to athletes, um, you know, that, that had lived both lives. So, that was really cool for me. I mean, everything was so much sharper in the AHL, the play, the preparation, yeah. the, um, the overall skill set. But I, I loved my time and my teammates in the ECHL, still some of my best friends to this day. Um, yeah. because they're, you know, just, just living the dream, trying to pursue, uh, pro hockey in any way they can. But it, but Europe was, uh, I'm so happy I did it because it gives you an appreciation for, you know, the game and what it's given you and what you've put into it and, and, you know, the opportunity to see the world, um, and live in a different environment. But you also, I think culturally it shaped me a lot different, right? Where I went over for two years, living in a different place, you know, it, in so many ways I was the minority, you know, only English speaking guy on my team, my last year and, um, or one of the only English speaking guys, definitely the only North American. Um, but you, it, it's humbling. And then you come home and, you see the privileges that we have here and you see the, the life that we can lead here. And it's, uh, 
it's it's a tremendous uh, experience for anyone anyone that could ever do that in whatever business that you're in. But yeah, it's Europe helped me find a little bit of my offensive side, which you know I was never uh, guilty of here in North America when I was playing. But uh, <laughs> it was great. It's uh, certainly wouldn't trade any of the stops, even though there were many for uh, for anything. Absolutely. So, so you're, you have a great career at Denver, you get to play, you know, professional hockey all over the world. And the whole time you're like, I can't wait to get into tech sales, right? <laughs> yeah, like that's what exactly. you always wanted to do. <laughs> and I think this is probably true of a lot of athletes and, and especially the college ones. Cause I think there's this, I think there's this misconception or, or a conception whether it's true or not that, you know, players that come from Canada, that come from major junior hockey, that like hockey's their only avenue. Right. It's their only thing that they can do with their lives in college, you know, college educated players that play pro hockey. Oh, they've got their degree. They're going to go do something else. And I think that almost works as a disservice to college guys because it makes people think that we don't care as much, um, which was never the case. Right. But I did know I, I had a degree. I did know that it was depreciating every year that I was playing the game. Um, so the last few years, I mean, Honestly, of the six years that I played, probably the last three, I had a little bird on my shoulder just chirping my in my ear saying like, hey, what's next? What's next? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And um, and I think a big part of that, and it's funny, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation how, you know, we, we haven't talked too much. We've known each other for so long that we haven't talked too much about, you know, my career and stuff like that. And, and I think that's a byproduct of how much I was trying to learn from you at the time, too, because I, I was seeing what you were doing with your career and um, seeing the success that you were having and every chance I was getting, I was just trying to pick your brain and, and figure out, um, you know, what goes into being successful in something else. And it, I took the roundabout way after the game, you know, I <clears throat> stayed in hockey on a coaching staff, seeing if, you know, maybe coaching was still in my blood and figured out pretty quickly. It wasn't, um, met my, my girlfriend at the time, just before my last year is now my wife. And, um, you know, knew that, Hey, I'd love, I'd love to know what a Friday and a Saturday night looked like again. Um, I'd love to settle down and, and be closer to, to home, to my family. So coming back to Boston was really the easiest decision I could make at the time, but the hardest decision was figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, and you know, we both know a lot of former hockey guys that are in the commercial construction world and, you know, we're finding a lot of success there. And I said, Hey, it's, you know, it's tangible. Boston's growing every day. And, you know, maybe I'll get into that and did a few years in project management and really learned what, what blue collar and not that I, I was doing it by any means. I mean, I was a project manager at the time, but, um, seeing blue collar work every day, you know, helping open up job sites at, at five thirty in the morning. And, uh, that was a, a humbling ex experience in and of itself. But, um, tech sales was something that obviously I'd seen you be successful in other people be successful in, but my fear was in, in and I think this is probably the same fear of a lot of people that are going to work with shift is that, you know, hey, I don't want to start over. I don't want to go bang the phones, you know, being 30 years old or 28 years old with a bunch of 21 or 22 year olds. You know, I just, I'm too proud to do that. And I think the best advice that anyone ever gave me, and I heard it from a number of people, yourself included is, you know, don't, don't cheat it. Like don't do it. Don't skip a step, you know, make sure you get the foundation that you need. Um, and you know, it's ironic cause I, I was interviewing at huddle, you know, back when I was working in commercial, uh, construction management and 
I had no sales experience. I didn't really know what I was talking about on the phone. I didn't really understand how to qu- answer any questions that were being asked of me. Went out, got you know two or three years of of true foundational sales experience, and then I land back at Huddle, and I've been you know really successful for it. So, as uncomfortable as it is, I'd encourage anybody just to don't cheat, don't cheat the system. You know, do it by the book, do it the right way, uh, and you'll thank yourself in the long run. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about, with, especially with the older guys like yourself that are that are like in their late twenties, early thirties, transitioning out of the game. Like the reality is, you do you got to kind of carry the water bottles again, right? Like that's kind of the the euphemism that we use. And I think like you know, you'd be shocked now, like some of the comp plans for these BDR roles are they're pretty close to six figures in a lot of cases. So it's like you're not really taking a step back financially. Yes, you're going to be working with some younger people, but you know that should give you energy and enthusiasm more than anything else. Because you know you're going to get the look earlier for that for that next promotion to account executive because of your maturity and life experience. So we just remind them of that. But hearing it from somebody other than me is is super powerful. So thanks for mentioning yeah. that. Now, was it was it conversations with guys like me that like kind of got your ears perked up for sales sales like what like why why was sales always something that you were like in the back of your head like okay I think I could I could go in that direction someday after project management. Yeah, it, it's funny, and I think my dad will. I think he'd admit to this is that. You know, he was in uh, sales. He, he sold abrasives, uh, you know, grinding wheels and diamond tools and to, to manufacturing companies. And um, I think the running joke amongst my friends is like, hey, does your dad have a job? Like, does he work? And all it was is, you know, because he was able to take me to practice. He was able to, you know, be at every game. And he was just a, a big part of my my life in athletics. And, and I, you know, so appreciative for that. But the ironic piece is, you know, and looking back is he was just really good at his job. Yeah, he had his book of business and he was a great salesman. He maintained his relationships and was able to um, you know, really reap the benefits of of that and leverage the flexibility that the role offered him. So I always, you know, looked back and or now looking back, it's um it seems kind of like a natural transition for me. But I think the biggest piece is working in construction, working, you know, in the hockey world after playing is there just wasn't a scoreboard, right? Like I I couldn't judge myself against my peers. I didn't feel that I was being compensated for my effort because I was, I just dumped myself into everything that I do professionally. So I wanted to see some, you know, financial um, reward for that piece. So the scoreboard piece, I think was a big motivator for it. And um, also that I just saw, you know, the software industry in Boston was just taking such a a, a skyrocketing, um, you know, turn and the opportunities that were growing. And I said, you know, hey, if I can go, if I can go get the foundational knowledge now and do it quickly and efficiently, you know, it's not going to take that long to get to the next place. And, you know, now staying at a company for four or five years is almost a long time. And it, it's wild. Um, and I think I'm a, I'm a good uh, example of kind of how you can, you know, go place to place and get, you know, reap the benefits of, of certain um, you know, company cultures and, you know, training opportunities and things like that. But, you know, finding a place like Huddle where it's allowed me to to leverage that experience and grow into new roles um, has been really valuable. Yeah, I, I could, it is a, di- it's a different type of culture now. Like that four or five year kid is so rare, yeah. right? You're seeing a lot of, a lot of like one to two to three year stints max uh, because there is, 
so much opportunity now, right? Everything's being disrupted by software. You're seeing it in the sports world with companies like Huddle, and you're seeing it in healthcare, property, construction. I mean, there isn't an industry out there that isn't disrupted with software. So well said. Um, and, and to your point, like you can also, you can learn to sell software in one space and use that to get into the space you ultimately want to get into, which is exactly what you did, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that's, I think, you know, uh, a connection of ours uh, was my first, my first business development manager, Kristen Rafi. And um, I showed up at Mendix, you know, as a, as a green 28, 29 year old uh, BDR. And, you know, that week we were purchased by Siemens, like literally like the week I, I got there. So I was able to see what a small company getting bought, being acquired by one of the biggest in the world, what that looks like on, on the office floor. And it was, I mean, not to be, you know, overly dramatic, but it was like euphoric for the people that I saw that had stock that, and I know you've gone through this yeah. personally, like that just, it, it changes their lives. Um, so seeing that was like, okay, there's the shot in the arm I need to go do this right. And through Siemens and Mendix, I was able to, you know, get some really formal and intensive sales training that to your point is literally applicable in every technology market that you work in. The only thing that changes are the personas that maybe you're selling to and the things that they value. Uh, but the process and typically the, you know, the, the typical objections and, and the issues or, or the obstacles that you face in sales cycles will be very, very similar regardless of what you're doing. And, um, and it's great too, because I think it afforded me a chance at Huddle to, to introduce new ideas to people that didn't have that. And, and even sales leaders who were, who were really appreciative of it. So um, you're so right that if, if you find a place that can teach it to you the right way, it's just going to accelerate your growth so much in the long term. Yeah, we talk uh, like we, we, we have cust like client hiring partners in every industry. And, you know, what I tell our guys is like, listen, like and girls is like, listen, the first job is, is it's not about your comp. It's not about, you know, it's not about the industry, the product. None of that necessarily matters. What matters is, are you going to get trained and developed? And do you have a good leader that can be a mentor? And it sounds like obviously I know Kristen, like someone like that taking you under their wing early days is, is critical. Um, and it sounds like you kind of went in like knowing like, all right, I just want to ramp as fast as I can because I don't want to be a BDR forever. What are, what are the ways like we have kids, a lot of kids that go into that BDR role with the goal of like, I just want to get to AE as fast as I can. Like what are, what are some ways that, that, and tools that you use to get that ramp time accelerated? Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> it's applying the work ethic that's necessary to be a high level athlete and just putting it on top of, of your day to day, because inherently, you know, elite athletes are just going to perform out, try and outperform their peers. So like, that's your immediate leg up the day that you walk in the door. So like just being confident to that and being reliant on that is super important because it's easy, no matter who you are, no matter what athlete you are, if you're in a new environment, people aren't looking at you like they're looking at you like everybody else. They're not looking at you like a, a former, division one or, or high level athlete, um, you're just another, you know, butt in the seat. So what should be happening, you know, kind of under the, uh, or in your mind or, you know, internally at that time is just knowing that, Hey, I'm going to outwork everybody here. So relying on that's really, really important. I think the other piece too, is, is just trying to, trying to understand what everybody in the business does and what, 
the most successful people in those roles? Like, what do they do? And can you learn from that? Can you take pieces that work really, really well? And in those conversations is like, hey, in your first week here, what didn't work? Like, what didn't work well? What should I just avoid? What should I not waste my time doing? Um, Because time is of the essence, right? Like, you know, in in sport, you can dump yourself into it. You can in, in business as well, but you can only sell, you know, so many hours a day. Um, so making sure that you're making really efficient use of your time is super important too. But, um, it's funny, it's a balancing act. Like you want to ramp as quickly as you can, but you can't do it too fast. Like you you have to take your losses and you have to remember that being a business development rep or, uh, you know, um, anything of, of the sort where you're doing cold calling, it is the hardest job in sales. Like it's, you're getting hung up on, you're pissing people off, you're, catching them, you know, at lunchtime or, um, you know, you just got to get creative and, and stay really, really even keel throughout the process. And, um, I know a lot of teams adopt the, the phrase, trust the process, but it's true. Just have faith in yourself and wins will come and repetitions will, will yield, um, higher performance. Yep. Per- perfect practice makes perfect. Absolutely. Um, who, who you, You've had, you've worked for a bunch of different people. Do you have like a, a mentor that stands out and like the lessons that you took from them that, that like kind of you take with all the time? Yeah. I, there's been a, I mean, I, I've only had a few stops, but there's been a lot of people. I mentioned Kristen. I mean, she's been, uh, an at, like just a, you know, kind of a sounding board for things that I've wanted to do in my career, changes that I've wanted to make. And I think she's quietly, you know, laid in advice without telling me what to do. And I've always really appreciated yep. that about her and um, what I consider now to, to be a friendship more than a, a mentor mentee. But, you know, senior sales leaders at Mendix like Bill Fitzgerald, you know, I, he had, my God, he's seen it all, right? EMC, IBM. And then, you know, now he's at Google. He's he's seen a lot of stuff and just a true Boston sports guy. Like, I mean, cut from the cloth that we always known and or we've always known and He's been tremendously successful. And then reps at Mendix like, uh, um, oh, God, Tom Gallagher uh, played hockey at Providence. Brandon Seppa. Yeah, Brandon Seppa. Who just, I mean, seeing true enterprise sales in a really complex environment um, and just the way that they carried themselves through those conversations was always really uh, helpful for me. And then, you know, jumping to a a startup like Fair Market with Kevin Frechette, Tarek, Mike, I mean, guys that were younger than me. And again, like just still being in that environment, but learning every single day um, and really seeing like what sourcing all the way to closing and certainly didn't have that many closes in my time there. But, um, you know, so but running the whole deal cycle and being given that opportunity and afforded it, um, I'm really appreciative of. And, and now working with people here at Huddle that, you know, have been in the sports technology industry for 20 years and when we sell on a on a global footprint right to manchester united and chelsea and you know uh you know i'm right down the street from unc and duke so it's um it's been a wild ride so far but you know it's it's because of all the people that have allowed me the opportunities and have given me the advice that i've needed i i love the idea of getting started in your career selling like a very disruptive unbudgeted software where your competition is business as usual because that is the hardest thing to sell in the world right i i did two years as a cro in low code and i know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to that complex environment right you're basically 
trying to convince people to do things differently than they have for the last 50 years. It's hard, but it's so good. It's such a good foundation to build upon um, as you kind of grow in your in your career. So yeah, yeah I can totally appreciate yeah. that. It um, teaches you to push towards like true value and, you know, time yes. and things that you can touch and see um, rather than features and functionality, which I know is just the, the biggest misstep of so many reps out there. But yeah, it's a great point. Now that that leadership kind of background has also played into your sales career. You made a switch that I made. I made it when I was like a little bit younger at like 28, but you did it recently going from, you know, that individual contributor to 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 building and and running a team. What was that adjustment like for you and like where did you see like your biggest even as a natural born leader, like where were there gaps in your skill set that you had to beef up? Yeah, it's <laughs> There's a lot of gaps. I think um, I think the people side came really easy to me. Like I think, yeah. you know, moving from you know uh, being part of a pod where you know shoulder to shoulder with all my colleagues to uh, and all my peers to then being uh, the manager uh, of that pod was you know for some I think could be a really strange transition. But I, I tried my best to be as transparent as I could and you know just tell them that hey things are pretty much status quo. I'm just going to be you know helping helping you guys now rather than working alongside you and, and really being more of a part of your day to day. So the transition was pretty easy. I think where I really had to ramp up and spend a lot of nights and a lot of weekends was just the data piece. It's forecasting, it's, um, you know, things that really matter to senior leadership. And as a company that's, you know, now partnered with private equity, that's, you know, um, in a really, uh, in a really unique position of growth right now, I think we're really focused on that stuff, but, Intrinsically, I what I look back on, and I think was the hardest part for me, and probably a lot of a lot of the people that you know Shift's going to work with, and their hardest uh, adjustment is just going to be helping former athletes, and we attract a lot of them through the transition of leaving sport and coming into business because it's tough. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like uh, I think something I was thinking about leading up to this is that something I wish I had more than just a few friends like yourself that had gone through it is a community of people that can help you through it and that you can share frustrations and, and sadness, right? Like you're redefining yourself. You're, um, it can be really tough. And I think people think it's like, all right, it's going to be a few weeks of adjustment. It's no, it's, it's years. Like I still, I'm just watching NHL games like regularly again. And, you know, cause it's now it's just all kids. I don't have to worry about seeing, you know, a lot of my former teammates say there's still some, but um, it doesn't sting as much anymore, but it's, it takes years. And I think being really vocal about it and, you know, for me now in a management role, having people on my team that are going through it or have gone through it, hopefully they can look to me as somebody that they can at least communicate with and, and share that, that struggle with. Yeah. And, and, and like, I don't know how you think about it, but like when I think about leading teams, I look at it like a lot of people are like, all right, this is the boss and these are the people that work for the boss. For me, as a great leader, you, you work for your team, right? Like your your job is to make them successful. Like when I think of mediocre sales leadership, I think of the people that they care about their number and if they hit their number, they had a good year. But like, that's not really what, what great leadership is, is like, hey, I work for you and I'm not successful unless you're successful. Is that kind of... Like, is that your view on like how you're running your teams now? Yeah, servant leadership. I mean, it's, you know, they, I think 
uh, the phrase of the book is, uh, you know, leaders eat last. And it's, I'm a huge believer in my, my current manager, uh, our uh, director of North American sales, you know, he enlightened me during my interview process of, hey, there's enabling and then there's empowering. And are you going to be an enabler or are you going to empower people? And like that to me, and understanding the differentiation between, hey, I'm going to do the job for you, or I'm going to give you the skills and the resources and the the guidance to go do it yourself. There's a huge difference and it results in dollars and cents in our business. Um, but I'm really open with my team of, hey, I want to know what your professional aspirations are. I want to know what your personal aspirations are. Um, and I want to help you get there. And, you know, if it's giving you the skill set and the experience here to go be really, really successful somewhere else, then I'm going to be your biggest advocate. Like, I'm never going to hold you back from an opportunity. Um, because that's what I always appreciated out of leaders was, hey, we want to move you on. We want you to be successful here. We want you to help us win here. And then we want you to go do stuff that's going to challenge you long term and, and be successful for you and your, your career growth. So, um, yeah, look for leaders like that. Never look for, to your point, it's if you get somebody that's worried about a number and then pushes you out in the cold and to go get that number, that's, you know, have faith in yourself, but that's not the right place to be. Yeah, we, we try to avoid that type of culture with any company that we work with. So I can't agree more. It's so important. Leadership is the most important thing to look for in your first company, especially. All right. Last couple questions, buddy. Thank you for, for sticking it out with us. Um, oh, it's been a pleasure. So this one, I we ask everybody this. Mo most memorable commission check and what you did with the cash. Jeez. Uh, oh, jeez. Last, last year? Last August? Um, uh, a prominent ACC school and the negotiation was a beast. The negotiation took three months. I was dealing with a, a true procurement person that didn't understand the value of any of our products. Um, right. wasn't listening to the users, wasn't, you know, we, we buy in everywhere except this one person that was just, just wanted their pound of flesh. Exactly. was, you know, and for them, it's a sport, you know, for them, they're not getting emotional for me. It's, it's a huge change in my annual income, you know, and diapers, dude, it's, it's diapers, <laughs> it's formulas, it's all that. Um, but we made it through and it was, it was the largest deal in, in the NCAA that year. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I, it, it was the most, it was the biggest trench battle I've had in sales and to figure out a way for us to both walk away feeling like we won, I think was my biggest, <clears throat> my, the, the thing I hung my hat on. Um, bought a new driver, and I named it. Yeah, after, yeah. And I named it after the procurement guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so it worked out. Well. It worked out well. And they, yeah, and the rest goes into the diaper fund. So you should you should be naming the golf ball after the procurement exactly. guy. Swing, dude. Exactly. So you swing a little harder. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, yeah. You you remember you remember the big wins, but you also remember yeah. the the losses here and there. So. Ah, totally, totally. That's where you learn more for sure. 100%. So uh, this one, I kind, I kind of stole from my dad. Uh, my dad used to tell us when we were growing up, you know, hey, listen, there's, a lot of people play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players, right? There's a difference um, between, and, and I think in any career that you could say that, right? A lot of people sell software, but not a lot of people are software sales professionals, right? So like, we think the highest praise you can give a salesperson is calling them a pro, um, you know? So, so what is, you know, in in sales specifically, what does being a pro mean to you? Elite communication. 
Uh, to, that's to me because it's something that I've really tried to focus on of being very measured in my words and very thoughtful of how you say things and the environment that you say them in. Um, and I think it, it trickles into so many, you know, uh, external parts of not only your, your personal and professional life, but in a deal, if, if you come across gen and hopefully you genuinely feel like you, you know, care about the customer and you care about the process and, um, the people that are involved in it. But if your communication is very, very pointed, direct, clear, and honest, I mean, it's really hard to lose. You may lose that deal, but people will never forget the way that you treated them. They're never going to forget the experience that they had with you. Um, so just being an elite communicator, I think will serve you so well in your professional life. Because again, it, it, the people that are going to be working with Shift are so already above and beyond the norm in this industry with a lot of the intangibles that if you can work on your communication, if you can work on you know your messaging, it's gonna, it's just gonna skyrocket you to to the next level, um, and that's something that I've always you know appreciated of, of pros like yourself and and other people that we've known is like they can inspire with you know off the cuff sentences and they can um, you know see four or five steps down the road because of their experience and they can communicate that to people that haven't been in that position. Um, all these things add up to just a much higher likelihood of success, you know, and, and everything you put your mind to. Dude, I love that answer. We haven't gotten that one before, but it's so true. That's, that is the, that is the differentiator for success. A lot of the times is how you communicate and just being thoughtful and, and careful in how you, how you communicate. That was awesome. Dude, unreal conversation, Tomer. Thank you oh, so you much, know. buddy. I really appreciate it. It's good to exactly. see you. Hopefully I get to see that that procurement driver in action this summer, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'd be great. My my treat. All right, buddy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, fellas. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.